Good morning. Thank you. Hi, Catherine. How are you? Cannot complain. How you been? <laughs> I'm doing well. Is this a breakfast in the background? Yes, it is. Why am I not invited? I wouldn't be invited. <laughs> I see toast. I see croissant. I see juice. And I see my first law of coffee and food, which I don't like. Come on now. Let me uh, let me change the background. So I have a question. Is this is this more an audio or is this both audio and visual for your I just want to I'm, sure. I'm, I'm recording it as as um both audio and video, but I think but obviously I'll just use the audio for the podcast. Okay. That's fine. Okay. I'll keep the background up because I have backgrounds for a certain certain event. So. Wonderful. How are you? How you been? Busy. <laughs> I imagine, yeah. So I, I'll just say this. I've been following your career for some time. Right. Wow. And I love the work that you do. And I think I was talking to one of my friends. What was it? I think it might have been around 2019, the Essence Festival. I think they were celebrating their 20th year. And it was a huge thing. Oh, and yeah. I told my I, I told myself, wow, I wish Boston had like a Boston Creole festival. We could have like a ball in the evening and then the festival throughout the day, all throughout the city, and all these Hollywood people would descend and create chaos. And then one of my friends told me, Well, you don't know about the Ben's Fest? I'm like, <laughs> what is that? She's like, well, it's similar to what you're describing. So no need to reinvent the wheel here because somebody's <laughs> already doing that, right? And, and, and when I started watching the work, I was like, yep, it's happening. <laughs> it's happening. Slowly so, in a city like Boston. But yes, it is It is happening. You know, very just, I just want my city to win. I want everyone to feel proud. And mm -hmm. that um, when we talk about arts, music, and culture, it is actually fully represented and not just a dominant culture narrative or, or you know, a, a particular kind of discipline or genre of music that really isn't representative of the people who have made this city what it is, in my mm. humble opinion. Um, right. And so starting it, that's the whole point. <laughs> yeah, that, that is the whole point. But I want to ask you, uh, the Ben's Fest, um, arts, culture, music, what all of that means. But before, how were you introduced to the arts? What was your first introduction to the field? My first introduction to the fields, I would say two things. Um, I was a member of the Blue Hill Boys and Girls Club on Talbot Avenue. Mm -hmm. And um, I had just transitioned from being a 12 year old to being 13. And we just had a, uh, they just hired a new teen director who I still talk to to this day. Mm -hmm. uh, his name is Derek. And he came in very proud and just started doing all of these talent shows. Mm. And I loved how he did that. I mean, he would invite everybody from the community. And I, I'm like, I'm so inspired, but I want to do my own thing. I want to do my own talent show inside the Boys and Girls Club. And so I went to him and said, I want to learn everything from you. And, you know, the relationship between adult and teen can go one of several ways. You know, mm -hmm. he could have decided... And, he could have decided and said, no, you know, I'm not going to do that. Um, but he said, you know, what? I will teach you because you actually want to learn this. So everything from, you know, 
calling out artists for rehearsal to sign up to developing the production of it, uh, designing flyers and going out into the community. I learned all that from him. And so I ended up producing my first talent show at 13 at the Blue Boys wow. Girls Club. And about 250 community members showed out. And it was like the longest talent show, but I didn't care because I wanted to make sure that all of my peers were seen. Mm-hmm. And it, it was like four hours. <laughs> um, but I, I ran it like a very tough, business it was more so like you know if you want to be part of this you have to audition I have to make sure that you're good I have to make sure that you're serious about this because I'm putting my name on it and mobilizing my peers at 13 wasn't the easiest thing but I recognized that we all had this common factor that we really loved arts and music and culture and really just wanted to showcase our talents to our family and our friends but it, it's going to take a whole bunch of people to do that, but also a leader. So I decided at that time I was going to do it. Um, and I love dancing. Dancing is one of my favorite pastimes. You know, I can't move like I used to, but um, cultural dancing, I really appreciate it. So at that time, all of us just had energy. And I'm like, I want to harness that, mobilize it, amplify it, celebrate and everything. So that was one, that was one of two examples of how I got into the arts was just an adult took a chance on a child mm-hmm. work. And then when I was in um, eighth grade, I uh, had a really great relationship with my eighth grade principal who gave me permission to teach a hip hop elective class to my peers. Now, mind you, I am an alumni of the MECO program here in Boston. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it was a big deal for a black kid to be given the authority to lead a hip hop class and that their peers would be graded. So it would count or it wouldn't count towards their academic experience. So I was able to teach, you know, 12 white kids and three or four um, African-Americans and Asian-American kids hip hop. And then work with a teacher to co-produce the eighth grade talent show. And it just solidified, like, this is the world I want to be in. I want to be in a place where there's constant creation. I can totally be myself. I can totally be innovative and imaginative and not have to worry about, did you earn a degree in this? I just wanted to have fun in the things that bring me most joy. And being able to create platforms it really was my niche for myself. It just like all the experiences I had over my life prepared me to do this work for BAMS. Wow, that, that is very interesting. Um, at 13 year old, and then it, so you've been causing trouble since the dawn of time, <laughs> teaching kids about hip hop. Listen, so all of that prepared you, all of those years of preparation and talent shows and school and with teens like yourself really prepared you for this moment. You know, BEMS Fest has been successful up until COVID. Mm-hmm. And then I understand, you, you you know, the festival have had to switch to like online mini series. Mm-hmm. How has it, impa- how did COVID and quarantine impacted the, the festival? Well, I think in the world of, of festivals or large scale events, you know, you're at the mercy of a lot of things you can't control, whether uh, sometimes city politics, and also just the industries that you intersect. And so 
it was very clear that some of the festivals that are bigger than us that we, you know, aspire to be, aspire to scale to, mm-hmm. um, were canceling at a rapid rate. And, you know, we, we wrestled with that decision for months uh, and really thinking about, you know, could we pivot right now in this moment? And so in 2020, we, we decided to postpone, not cancel. We, we were very careful about our choice of words, mm-hmm. but postpone the festival and really figure out as an organization how we wanted to show up differently as we were, as the nation, as our city was coming out of COVID. Um, and so we did a lot of, you know, reorganizing, thinking about our own culture, thinking about how do we show up for artists of color differently, because we know that with a health pandemic came a racial pandemic. And uh, one had a little bit more impact than the other. Granted, things shut down, but Black and brown people were being targeted again, uh, and especially in the world of arts and culture, uh, not only were Black and brown people being targeted, but also arts was called upon, specifically Black and brown or melanated people were called upon to heal the world while dealing with their own trauma. Right. And putting that back as a reflection, whether it was dance or music or film or visual art, as a reflection for all of us to take a hard look at ourselves. So we spent a year of reflection in 2020 and then determined that based upon health reports, things that we were seeing, we're going to be with COVID, you know, for three to five years. So that puts us really almost at the 10 year mark of what will be BAMS Festival in the future. So knowing that, we had to really develop the fact that we may have to offer hybrid options, both online and in person, and do them a lot more frequently versus a one time annual event. And so for 2021 this year, we decided to pivot our festival. Um, probably because we had to, to uh, a mini concert series uh, for 11 weeks, basically the entire summer, because we still want to honor our commitment to amplifying Black and Brown artists, even in a virtual space. And so because of that, our digital content allowed us to be seen in front of 50,000 people. And we couldn't even fit that inside Franklin Park where the festival is housed. So to see that pivot and scale was remarkable for us to do this work. Got you. Um, I think I'm having some um, visual issues. Can you see me? Oh, I can see your, is it, what photo is this? <laughs> I don't know why it's not happening. It's okay. Zoom was like that. In any case, what I, my assessment of Boston's art scene as an outsider I like to believe that I consume a lot of arts. You will always find me trying to um, get into exhibitions and, and taking a look at what's out there. I think Boston is this place where a lot of other states and cities come to us, other artists come to us, and then we get to see what they do. But we don't all, I don't always get to see the people of Boston doing anything, mm-hmm. at the exception of perhaps. Yuka Holmes, who just have this incredible exhibition at the MFA. And also the other thing about Boston's art scene, I feel like it's very institutionalized. It doesn't offer a free space, a free vibe, which I believe is so essential to creation. It's just very put in a box. Can you do this? Would it fit there? How 
could we exhibit this in this space? So it doesn't really give artists the room and creators the room. And you know, now we live in a world of creators and mm -hmm. people wanna create all sorts of art and they are all necessary because they speak to different group of people. With Benfest, how has the ride been like having to create this and facing what I'm sure was hell <laughs> of, a, <laughs> of opposition and barriers, but you and your team pulled through this organization. The festival has been in existence for some years. You've, you've showcased a lot of performers, Black artists. What has the ride been like? I will say when I first started the organization, the, the initial um, goal was to use a festival platform to make sure that black and brown artists were seen, heard, visible, and celebrated. And um, it was originally supposed to debut in 2014, but the city wasn't ready for that yet. <laughs> so I really had to, I had to tell some people, you know, I'm like, you know what, it's 2014, I'm going to, going to debut this festival in 2018. I'm gonna give myself four years. And in that four years um, leading up to the debut, what became very apparent is that the festival really is like graduation. It's actually all the work before it. Meaning that I had to actually just be on a listening tour for almost four years, understanding as many of the disciplines, as many of the concerns, frustrations, but also joys of being an artist, a working artist in the city. You know, when you layer in protected classes such as race, gender, class, education, you know, how complicated does this picture get for black and brown people, black and brown creatives? And what became very apparent after those four years, while we were still doing like smaller programming, is that there was a huge gap um, in professional development, but also really understanding the arts and culture ecosystem. Mm -hmm. Because it is very siloed, but we're, there's no clear understanding about who are actually all the key players and, and who pulls levers and who doesn't. Right now, or at the time, and even so this day, it feels like it's very institution-based, right. but they play a small part in that actually. Um, you know, space is a major issue. And so, it, it, you know, space is a major issue and there's such a focus on creating more programming, but there's not a lot of space to do that work. So at some point, space has to be more of a focus. But during the time that Bands Festival was developing itself internally, we would actually take over spaces that we felt black and brown people deserve to have access to. Because oftentimes you can walk past the building and not know what's in it. And mm -hmm. Boston has really shifted in terms of where black and brown people couldn't go years ago and where they can go now. It's, it is much more open. I know that can be sometimes hard to process for some people just because of the history and the trauma and the racial divide. But, you know, you can go into South Boston, you can go into East Boston, you know, at a time you couldn't, but now you can. And that to us opened a world of, well, let's look at the spaces that do exist. You know, are they actually being truly uh, intentional about welcoming all artists of color, all audiences of color? And if they are, how do we build with them? For spaces that do not, would they be even open to entertaining that? And here's our criteria of what makes a cultural space safe, um, fun, 
but also an opportunity that can encourage audiences and artists to come back on their own. And so for four years, we ended up activating anywhere between 25 to 35 public spaces, basically from Mattapan all the way to East Boston, both indoor and outdoor. And that journey was never easy because of the perception that certain disciplines or certain genres of arts and music and, and culture um, didn't fit into the Boston infrastructure or the culture of the dominant culture. And so people, certain people, whether they were venue managers or owners, uh, were really stuck in their ways or a certain decade of Boston that we're not in right now and probably won't be ever moving forward. And so we really challenge these spaces to think differently, which also challenge artists to think differently about how they approach venues, how they deliver uh, who they are and what, they're, what they create to audiences that might be totally different from their base and be prepared in that. And that with our programs, we would also always provide the opportunity for artists to talk about themselves outside of their artistry because it's one thing to create all day. It's another thing to actually talk about your process, what it means to create, but also how you live your life. Because any fan of arts and culture is going to be more, connect, more connected to the humanity or the human side of you than just your art. Right, right, right. You really said it all. Because <laughs> that's been one of the things I've tried to explain to my friends and my family. Because oftentimes when I go to museums, it's always like, why you always go to so many museums? Not, well, because that's where all the art is. It's one exhibition for three months and then another one for three months. There is not this open space that I see in Seattle or mm -hmm. even in New York where people can just come and experience or even engage with the art. It's a lot of, I, I think Boston also has this, we only observing it, we only seeing it. We're not really able to engage with it on, on a multi-level as I would like to. But everything you've just mentioned from creating space, accessing new space, and even engaging with people that own or want those spaces to create new opportunities. Um, you've worked at the Isabella Garden Museum. I love that courtyard. And now you are in this role. You are new in this role at the Boston Foundation. Correct. What does that role mean for you? And what is the plan? How, what, do, what it is you hope to do with that role? <laughs> Those are great questions. Um, you know, the transition from being director of public programs at the Isabella Stewart Garden Museum to now being director of arts and culture or the arts and culture strategy at the Boston Foundation um, is very timely, actually. I don't, I don't know if I would have accepted the role a year before or two years after, but it's timely right now. Um, mainly, I think, because there, there is a change in the air around the urgency for everyone to see how important arts and culture is and that the perspective from someone like myself who has been boots on the ground who has listened to artists who who has used her platform resources time bringing all her family to these events to ensure that artists have felt that they are fully supported holistically supported 
being uh, on the receiving end of challenging philanthropy or grant makers around their application process or the kind of money that, that they delegate um, or disperse. I've been on all of those rooms. I've worked my way up tirelessly uh, to be heard, not for the sake of myself, but for artists who may be afraid to speak on, to speak on their issues may not have the time or the resources, but want to continue to stay here and may not know where to go. So as a, as a fan, as a consumer of the arts uh, and of arts and culture, I felt it was a responsibility of mine to ensure that my children, my cousins, nieces and nephews, the next generation, this current generation is able to truly have access to arts and culture. So in this role as Director of Arts and Culture Strategy for the Boston Foundation, right now I'm in my listening tour. I'm starting all over again because Boston has changed like a fourth time. <laughs> and what has become very apparent, I think, in part of my listening tour so far is this idea of the ecosystem. Um, you have a lot of different major culture institutions um, that are, are pushing agendas that may not necessarily be inclusive of the artists that they invite to be a part of their programming. So it's a very um, disorganized ecosystem that really actually needs to be rectified and or um, illustrated in a way so that everyone actually understands what is the current ecosystem for arts and culture and where do we wanna be in the future one or two years from now? And what is it actually going to take to make it work? And it seems like it's institutions and spaces versus artists. And it's just like, those are not the only levers or players in this, in this ecosystem. You have a lot of different other people, but they may not even know that their role is important. And so we have to recognize that and figure out that um, set of uh, wire crossings and, and really uh, undo those things to get clarity about how should we be moving so that everyone else gets the benefit from this thing that we love called art and culture. Um, I think the vision is not quite clear right now because I just started, mm -hmm. but what is clear for me is that space will have to be a, a, a priority of, of conversation with state legislators, with politicians, city councilors, even the mayor, because as, as residential housing is going up, we're losing on, on community centers, we're losing on all different types of spaces. The future of like what museums are supposed to be, or could be in the, or, or could be in the for in the foreseeable future, are being challenged because we not we as people of color may not be reflected in those institutions, and the ones that we do have don't get the resources that they need to be successful. Right, that is always a, a, a challenge. It really is gut punching because oftentimes you would see the programs that our communities need, you know, communities of color. I'm an immigrant, I'm from Haiti. They okay. often struggle financially, which is a huge piece, but also they also struggle to have a turnout right. for their community, right? And it's probably because members of the community are so busy taking care of other things that are perhaps more essential. Uh -huh. How do you balance that? Because you work in those spaces, you've studied BEMSFEST from the ground, you've been at uh, an institution, the Gardner Museum that has been there for, for decades established, uh -huh. now at the Boston Foundation. I guess, what is your perfect recipe 
What <laughs> makes it happen? Partly, I, I mean, I center humility in everything that I do. It, it's really about respect and being open to people's stories. And the reality is, even at a community level, you know, the, the biggest thing as a native of Boston I've always struggled with is that for all the programs that happen, there's three or four or five programs on the same day. And I'm like, I wonder, are these folks actually talking to each other? And they don't because, it, you know, Boston has a certain competitiveness, you know, naturally about being the first, the only, the last to do something very historic in, it, in, its, in its founding and founding fathers and mothers and things of that nature. And so that trickles down to a interesting psychological mentality that I did this event first before anyone else, when you could have actually shared in the resources and the communication and cross-promoted cross-promoted the events that actually allow you to amplify and increase the kind of visibility to a variety of different people. But we don't do that because we actually are taught in a very unconscious way to compete with each other. And that's what further divides the, the silos, institutionally, community level, even artists. And so we have forgotten how to center humility in the work. And so it makes it difficult to actually see people for who they are because we're constantly competing. Competing with each other. Yeah. Competing with each other, not just institution versus community. It starts with the individual first, and then it works its way to the institutional level. So we have to get real about what are we willing to sacrifice to make this work for everybody. And those that don't want to, there's, there's other ways that they can get involved. But for those that are truly about sharing in the resources, sharing in the work, it does make it a little bit easier so that individually we're not scrapping for things. And it changes right. from a scarcity model to more of a sustainability model if we want to go there. But that is both an individual and a collective choice. Yeah. So, and, and I do wonder, as you talk about this, are they aware that it does a disservice to the field Right, because I would imagine anybody who works in art and culture, they don't do it for themselves. It's more of a collective and bring bringing a voice of, of, of for a group that probably felt voiceless and making sure that people see themselves in a piece and an event, find comfortability maybe. So I would imagine, I wonder, do they know when I, when I do this by myself in a very secluded space and an mm -hmm. approach that doesn't include everyone or collaborate with others that if I get to, to the point where I cannot do this anymore, then it's no longer exists because I didn't collaborate. There's nobody I can patch. I can pass the torch to. I do wonder if they are aware of that. Uh, I think in some pockets there are. And I think partly it's about what do you do with your network? What do you do with the people that you've worked hard to build relationships with? You know, is that constantly expanding over time where you can connect people or groups to each other? Mm -hmm. I think what is very clear in Boston is that everyone is very protective of their networks and rightfully so, but you can't take it to the grave with you. Eventually, <laughs> you, you, just, you can't. Eventually, that network will, will need to meet other networks. And so... You know, I think about when I got started in BandsFest, it did feel alone until I recognized that there were aspects of our business model, our mission and vision that resonated with different kinds of people across different fields. 
And I, what I did, which is very hard for, for a lot of leaders or, or innovators or even cultural disruptors to do is ask for help. There is something about pride that will kill us, but if you don't ask for it, you may not ever get it or know that you have access to it. Right. And that's one of the biggest hurdles we have to overcome um, in arts and culture is asking for it. Also challenging people within the arts and culture ecosystem because they don't know what they don't know. And some people know better and they probably just haven't been told about themselves and that's okay. And if they're not willing to listen, find somebody else. But you have to understand that when you get into an industry like arts and culture, it is a lifelong commitment. It's not something you just do and fall out like other industries and no disrespect to those, but arts and culture, as I firmly believe personally, we come into this world innately creative and then we're taught the fundamentals of how to deal with real world problems but the very few that choose to be creative constantly they're rare so you know for any artist that chooses to wake up every day and create something new put it out into the ether be judged for it build a fan base I salute them because that's not easy to do most of us have to be told what to do artists do not go with that direction. So it is important that to see artists, not so much on a pedestal, but they really do add value and perspective. And they do challenge us to think about the human condition in a much different way. It doesn't require you to boast about your affiliations or degrees, but really about, can you just relate to this as an individual? Does your spirit connect with this content? If it does, you now have a new relationship in this arts and culture ecosystem. Wonderful. So let me ask you, when you're looking at a piece or when you are in a space, you are experiencing whether it's a concert, an exhibition, or talk, whatever the form or the medium the art is presented to you, what do you look for? Um, if I'm there for personal enjoyment, I mean... I think for me, for art, I look at colors, I look at flow, I look at direction. Things have to, they have to move me. You know, like I said, I operate from a fan first before anything else. And so I look at, you know, for instance, just art itself. I look at who the artist is and not for the sake of who the artist is, but once I find out their name, then I start reading about their story. You know, how they arrived into art, who inspired them, what other people inspire them, what books they might be reading or recommending, how they talk about their work in person, online, um, who else are they collaborating with? I look at all that so that when I go see a piece of art, I am fully informed about the humanity of that artist, which then helps me to then be an advocate or a champion to, for that artist, unbeknownst to them, to my network, like you need to go see this artist, they're super dope, this is what they're doing, and I can just go down the list. Yeah, yeah, that is interesting. Um, I, I think I, I wrote in my journal last year, I think I went to New York, to one of those small museums in New York. I'm forgetting the name, but they had this exhibition. It's like a body experience and they were showing bodies bare in different shapes and size and nationalities and ethnic. And it was my first time seeing that they were photographed, so they were real people being exhibited. And I was like, yes, this is it. Everybody should feel less alone if they look at your piece. Uh -huh. You know, if somebody, I think even 
for music, for television, for whether it's a painting, everything that I look at, watch, I only engage with it because it makes me feel like I'm not alone in this, uh-huh. you know? So I think that's a unique gift. And you just said something that that is so important that artists needs to be valued, right? I think we in this age of where content is being created by the second. Right. And I think, um, I don't know if it's, a, if it's a blessing or a curse. I think corporate is a little too much involved <laughs> with content creation. So it's feel, it, it, it's, it feels very curated, like it's very targeted mm. what's being created. I'm talking specifically about um, social media these days. Yeah. And, and so I really wish that we, we can find ways. And, and I think the BEMFest is doing that. And I'm sure in this world, you will continue to do just that. We can just create more space and create opportunity where the artists feel value that they can be free in their creations and they can be free in how they choose to express themselves. Um, does knowing the artist's story make it easier for you to appreciate the art or can you just appreciate the craft itself without necessarily knowing the story of the artist or their background? I think it really, t- it depends on the context of, of, the work, you know, if we're talking about a personal exhibition that I've been invited to, I may not even know the artist, but they know of me, that is challenging me to really do my homework as a, as a fan to really understand their why. If it's more of in a, in a bigger space like a museum or, or even a festival, um, I may not necessarily need to know the artist personally, but I am looking for a through line or a connection, right? Like if a single artist is focusing on the black male experience and that is their thing, all the work beforehand that day and afterward, I'm, I'm going to be looking to see if that's the consistency. And if there's a change, why? And I want to know it. Um, I think it's important to me that like any human being, um, what you produce with your hands and your feet is a direct relationship to your values um, and how you make decisions. And that goes for artists. Right. They choose color palette. They choose texture. There's a reason why for that that leads to the outcome that all of us benefit from. And I'm more curious in that to help shape even curation for things that I'm doing or people are coming to me and asking me about recommended names for artists. I think about all those things because it is important that every single artist is building a legacy because that legacy will, will live on beyond them. And so it's imperative that their story is interwoven into all of that, their choices and what they believe, like all that matters, at least to me, because it becomes easier to advocate or, or tell someone else in a shorter period of time why they need to support this artist. Wonderful. So last question for you. Sure. Um, so you are in this new position. It is new. The position is new. The work is not. You've been doing right. this for years. Um, and you just talk about every artist is creating their legacy. You are nowhere near done with your work. But I want to ask you, 
what is it you hope your legacy to be or what is it you hope to create as your legacy? Great question. Ooh, because I always ask this of artists. Um, I think for me, my legacy, so I, I, have a, I have a young, young son and, you know, he's really inspired by what he hears and sees. He wants to create things of that nature. And what's important to me is that Boston has gone through different phases. And the one industry I want to see when taken seriously and invested in is arts and culture. It's not a hot topic right now, nor has it ever been over the last 20, 30 years, because people haven't seen arts and culture as a lifeblood, it, as, a, as a urgent thing that we all need and benefit from. It's like it's more like people are viewing arts and culture as frosting on a cake and not necessarily considering the importance of how that cake is formed, shaped, and how it tastes. Mm-hmm. And that artists add different ingredients to make the cake what it is. It's not just, oh, we'll put the frosting on the cake and make it look pretty. No, it takes some work in that. My legacy in this is stabilizing if not trying to, what I call re-weld some of the pipes, uh, um, pipes within the arts and culture ecosystem that have been broken for years. And it's things around advocacy process, you know, why are black and brown people not at the forefront at the state house advocating the way everyone else is for arts and culture? Well, there's, there's things to be learned about that, right? So this advocacy piece, policy change, having a direct revenue stream to arts and culture is really where my legacy continues to build towards because once that's stabilized, I believe that the narrative and identity of Boston will shift, but it's not right now. So there's a lot of selfless things I continue to do to ensure of preparing current and next generation artists of color to be armed with information, to be empowered, to make key decisions about the future of arts and culture and their role in it so that everyone benefits from it. Um, I'll just say this. You are a gift to the field. Um, Your passion shows. Um, It's always a delight to watch what you do and I'm always inspired. And obviously all minds think alike. Right. And so I just want want to thank you for for taking this on for for and I know it's a lot of work. It's a Mm. lot of yourself you giving to it. And and I guess it doesn't always love you back. (laughs) It's all right. You know, in this podcast, what I try to do is to talk to people, to have conversation and not only talk about the issues on black narratives, what's in film, what's in music, what's in museums, especially in Boston but also talk to people that are challenging those issues, that are tackling those issues, that are making space for young people, for women, for LGBTQ, for immigrants, Absolutely. right? I, I, I don't believe in pondering on the problem. What is it we can do about it? What's being done about it? I've had a great conversation with Reggie Williams with the Black Film Space. Mm-hmm. Um, I've had a wonderful conversation with, with Michael Bubbitt at, at the Mass Cultural Council. 
So there are people out there who might be wondering where to start. And I tell them, this is where you start. You, you knock on the doors of those institutions. You go to the events or on the Zooms meeting. That, that's where it all starts. And, and so I just want to thank you for, for, for this <laughs> moment, for, for taking the time and for the virtual breakfast. <laughs> <laughs> You're totally welcome.